The market doesn't joke around, so why would you? Get serious. Choose Tasty Trade. Tasty Trade gives you the tools you need to make smarter moves. Dig into data with advanced charting, track profit accurately with order chain trackers, see risk clearly with curve analysis, and trade with low-capped commissions, stocks, options, futures, and more. All on one platform. No wonder serious traders choose Tasty Trade. Join the club, genius. Tasty Trading is a registered broker-dealer and member of FINRA and SIPC. You're listening to The Exchange. Here's today's show. Thank you, Courtney. Great stuff. Hi, everybody. Here's what's coming up this hour. Inflation came in way higher than expected this morning. And now economists are scrambling to catch up. We're starting to see markets pricing upwards of six rate hikes this year, maybe even a half point hike next month. We have fresh news from Bullard on that. We'll get to it all. The latest data, what it means for markets, where you should be investing. And one area we're watching closely, car prices. They've soared unimaginably over the past year, if you can even get your hands on one. But is the worm starting to turn? We talked to Group One Auto CEO about the latest trends on dealer lots. Plus, more earnings. Today, we'll get you ready for Expedia, Affirm, and Zillow. Some interesting uh, tidbits to watch there. But first, before we get to anything, let's get to Dom Chu with the latest market numbers. You alluded to those Bullard comments. That's what's taken a little bit out of the scheme for the markets here. Federal Reserve of St. Louis President James Bullard being quoted right now in headlines, making some more hawkish comments about what's happening here. So watch that particular move here. That's what's sending markets a little bit to the downside. The S&P 500 down about 38 points, 45.48 the last trade there. The Nasdaq Composite, 111 points to the downside, just in the middle of the range. At the lows of the session, we were down roughly 1.9%. At the highs, just about one-tenth of 1% gain there. So the Nasdaq really just in the middle of that range and the Dow Industrial is down about two thirds of one percent, 236 points to the downside. Also watch what's happening right now with regard to a, an interesting move with regard to the small cap index. Believe it or not, the small cap stocks are actually up today as measured by the Russell 2000. This ETF tracks them. It's up about one half of one percent. It's a little strange. We're working on a multi-day winning streak at this point off some of the lows that we've seen. Higher interest rates should be more pressure more headwinds for small cap companies, yet some investors are buying up some of those shares up about one half of 1%. And then an interesting divergence in the land of retail right now, both on the luxury end of things. Check out the upside move about one and a quarter percent for Tapestry, the company formerly known as Coach and Kate Spade. It comes out with better than expected results and boosts its full year outlook. Meanwhile, Canada Goose, maker of high-end jackets, down 16% right now off its session lows after it comes out with a mixed earnings report and cuts its full-year guidance, so a divergence in the force with regard to luxury retail. Kelly, I'll send things back over to you. All right, Dom, thank you very much. For more on those comments from the Fed's Bullard that Dom just mentioned, let's get right over to our Steve Leisman. Steve? Yeah, and as you were talking about, Kelly, markets reacting immediately to those uh, Bloomberg uh, comments uh, from Bullard. Uh, What's happened immediately is the probability of a 50 basis point rate hike in uh, March now is at 62%, 61% call it. Guys, and don't put up those other charts that I had sent you earlier because they're now out of date. The whole spectrum has moved up. What we're looking for now, and I think the best way to think about this, Kelly, uh, is uh, call it uh, one to one and a quarter percent by June, uh, a 60% probability of, of being there. And then you have about a 70% probability of being between one and a half and one and three quarters percent. So what's happened is this uh, uh, very strong uh, inflation number came out. The market began to reprice for that 50 in there. 
I don't know that Fed officials want to go there. Bullard has been out there sometimes on a limb, sometimes leading us astray and sometimes leading the way. So you got to be careful. Listen to him carefully. He is a voter this year, part of a group of Midwestern hawks who we've spoken about, Esther George, Loretta Mester, and the new Fed governor, uh, Chris Waller, among them. Uh, there is a block of folks who want to go faster. I believe Bullard, as I read the wire, said that he is at odds with uh, Fed Chair Powell on, on this. Um, it's other people I've spoken to have not really wanted to move 50. But the interesting question now, Kelly, is if the market's going to give the Fed the flexibility to go 50 by pricing in it already, the Fed may well take it. Yeah, it's so interesting, Steve. So as much as we talk about this as this kind of exciting event that hasn't happened in over two decades, which is a half point rate hike, there are plenty of people out there saying, right. why is this even a big deal? You know, should that even, you know, Bill Ackman first called for this a couple of weeks back when it seemed a little bit out of consensus. You know, when Bank of America said seven rate hikes, everyone said, that's ridiculous. And now we are really quickly starting to catch up, if not surpass those views. And it makes you wonder how many hikes we might really end up doing. And then again, the, to the balance sheet side of this as well. I know it's not as simple to talk about, but should they be leaning a lot more on quantitative tightening and not going through all of these hikes? Right. So so let's take the first part of the question there. The second part is, is for sure. They're going to want to do more balance sheet. Buller talked about that. The idea is I don't think the Fed wants to surprise the market with a 50. So what the Fed does is it lays out what it calls a reaction function, which says incoming data does this. You should expect us to do that. And that's the way the reaction function has worked today. Uh, and Bullard came in and kind of affirmed that market reaction to, uh, to, to the incoming data. Um, so the Fed would not have done 50 as a surprise because there was no point in surprising the market. But now that the market is there, well... I mean, why not do it? The, the Fed did not want to impart any information to the market that it didn't already have. In other words, let's say they expect 25 the, uh, and the Fed comes in and does 50. Market's going to be like, wait, what do you know that we don't know? But now they all seem to know the same thing. And the market's pricing in the Fed at 50. We'll have to listen to some of the Fed speak over the next couple days uh, and, and weeks and see, do they affirm this or do they lean against it and see where the center of the board is here? Yeah, it's fascinating. It really is. Um, no one expected that report to come in stronger than expected. And look what it set off. Steve, thank you so much. We'll let you go for an hour. Steve Lee's sure. we will see him again soon. The 10-year yield crossing above the 2% mark today for the first time since even before the pandemic as a result of everything we've just been talking about. Joining me now to talk more about the implications for markets, Michael Schumacher is head of macro strategy at Wells Fargo. And Barry Knapp is managing partner and director of research at Ironsides Macro. Uh, great to see you guys both. Michael, let me just start with you on the rates piece of things. What do you see in the charts now? Yeah, it's interesting, Kelly. I think a lot of people have speculated 2% would be a, a huge inflection point. Certainly, it gets a lot of attention, no question about it. But is it really going to propel a lot of people to buy treasuries? I doubt it. I think the big concern is what Steve Leisman just talked about, and that is Fed policy. Is the Fed really going to go 50 in March? We doubt it. We think it sends the wrong signal. But there is so much noise to sort out right now. And oh, by the way, these inflation numbers are so scary. It's tough for us to get too excited about buying long-term treasuries at this point. Very interesting. So if I could put that differently, 
you know, we'd say that people were excited to come in and buy the 2%, 2%. Maybe that could be some kind of cap. And now everyone's saying, never mind, maybe, maybe I don't want to get in front of this. Barry, That's do right. you want to get in front of it? I mean, do you think rates are going to keep moving higher? And I'll ask you a question that someone just asked on Twitter. They said, what do we buy if we think inflation is going to be worse than what the Fed, <laughs> Fed seems to think here? Well, you don't buy treasuries for sure. And um, <clears throat> no, I, I'd be disinclined to, you know, to buy uh, treasuries at all, and in particular the back end. And, and you started asking Steve about the key issue here, which is how does this tightening process unfold? I've been arguing uh, strenuously that they should really focus on active balance sheet management and the mortgage portfolio in particular. The single biggest contributor to inflation in 2022 is likely to be shelter costs. I mean, we've got six months of price increases already baked in the cake because of the way those ag aggregates are are measured or calculated. And we've got house prices increasing, you know, one and a, almost one and a quarter percent per month. Rents are surging. Right. The Fed could take a lot of steam out of the housing market were they to actively start shrinking that mortgage-backed securities portfolio. So that'll determine whether you're in a yield curve steepener or flattener. Yeah. But as far as what you buy, equities for sure, and the reflationary sectors should be should be fine. Well, everyone hold that thought for just a moment. We just got the 30-year auction results in as well. Difficult setup <laughs> for a bond auction. Let's bring in Rick Santelli with the results and some analysis. We'll come back to you. Rick, how'd it go? Well, the results are exactly as you said. It's very difficult to have a 30-year bond auction when you have 40 years worth of inflation showing up before it, it occurs. I gave it a D. A D is in dog. It didn't go well. How shocking, right? So it's 23 billion 30-year bonds. Uh, where it really went wrong was the yield was 2.34, uh, well ahead of where the when issued market was trading. Higher yield, lower price. That's really the bulk of the grading uh, downgrade. Uh, the bid to cover was basically on top of the 10 auction average. Uh, the metrics for indirect weren't as strong as the last couple of 10-year and 30-year auctions, but it was a little above average. Uh, the dealers ended up taking less than 10 auction average, but it really priced very ugly. And if we look at a 10-year chart, not only can you see how it's trading post-auction, you can see the Bullard pop there that Steve talked about. And yes, it was right around 9 Eastern. We touched like 1.9999, and it was official around 1047 Eastern. We popped through it. Year-to-date chart, well, here we hover now at what, 2... 203, let's call it. That means we're up 52 basis points on the year. And as you see on the July 2019 chart, that's the last time we were closing over 2%. But I really quickly want to go back to the two-year. The two-year is making fresh two-year high yields as well. But boy, it really popped when Bullard's comments came out. At 156, it's up 83 basis points on the year. And it really underscores that the tens to two spread is now under 48 that's, let's see, we went from a 16-month to over an 18-month comp on that the last time it was this flat. And it shows how nervous the market is today between the auction and trigger-happy traders listening to Fed speak. Back to you. Yeah, perfect place to leave it, Rick. Thank you so much. As I turn back to Michael Schumacher. Michael Schumacher, again, Rick's pointing out that the difference between two-year and 10-year Treasury yields is less than half a point right now. Do these moves at least give you some confidence that maybe long-end yields will start to go back up and, and uninvert the curve here? Or, or what is this message, you think? No, actually, we go the other way, Kelly. So we think the yields go up, but we expect short-term rates like the two-year, the three-year Treasury to go up more than the 10- and 30-year. 
So we think the curve will get flatter and flatter. It's a very consistent pattern. But that's not good. The Fed <laughs> curve gets flat. It's bad. It's painful. But isn't that a sign that recession is coming? I mean, it, the twos, tens especially has been a fairly reliable indicator every time it's inverted. It, the, way, the speed with which this is happening, it feels like that could be a month away. Yeah, that's, it used to be a great indicator. I agree with you. But it's interesting when you think about the history since the financial crisis, the shape of the curve has been a weaker and weaker indicator. And the reason for that is the central banks have been so involved in the markets with their huge portfolios, whether it's the Fed or other central banks. They've kind of broken that link between yield curve shape and future growth. So it's worrisome, but it's not the indicator that it once was. Well, that's really good to hear because, Barry, I have to say everything else looks pretty bullish, if you want to call it that. And everything else seems to be screaming for the Fed to tighten, except the yield curve. And if they take too much of a signal from it, perhaps it's it's sending the wrong message. Yeah, I would, I, I would agree with Michael. Um, in Esther George's speech last week, she talked about long-term rates being potentially suppressed by 150 basis points because of Fed activity. Mm. Bill Dudley talks about this all the time, about suppressed term premiums as a consequence, again, of not just the Fed, but the ECB, BOJ, all that intervention in the market. So I think the reason that the yield curve inverted in 2019 was because we were in a global trade and manufacturing recession, not because the U.S. was headed into a recession. Surely the market didn't have any clue about uh, COVID coming. So I I absolutely think that's the case. But I think, listen, in, in the 2010s, Uh, 2014 through 18, when the Fed was normalizing policy, it was okay for the curve to flatten because demand for interest-sensitive parts of the economy was still impaired. Household balance sheets were under pressure, so housing, autos, and uh, and durables were, you know, demand was impaired. Right now, demand's off the charts. So the Fed should want those rates to go up. They should move away from using their blunt instrument policy tool and should actively manage balance sheet and try and get the curve to steepen to slow demand for housing, to slow demand for autos, and, Barry, and try and cool off inflation. A, but a, a quick you know, point. that doesn't seem to be the path they're on. No, well, it might be now. <laughs> but a final quick point for those, because you did make this a really good point in passing, and I just want to end with it. You said you should be long equities here, even though maybe in the 70s it was a different story. And you said especially the reflationary sectors. Can you just give me a couple specific names or sectors, and then we got to go? Sure. Energy, materials, financials and industrials. We're in a period very much like the 60s. It's a reflationary regime. We had our big policy shock back in January. That's enough for now. I wouldn't chase price, right? I'd buy weakness for sure, but I think equities are going to be okay through this. We had the big appropriate adjustment. All right. I appreciate you putting a point on it and us ending there. It was really, really great to have you both here today. Thank you, Barry Knapp and Michael Schumacher. Quick programming note, NEC Director Brian Deese will be on closing bell today at 3 p.m. Eastern with the administration's response to this morning's inflation data. And now to a news flash on the housing market where mortgage rates have just reset to a key level. Diana Olick here with the latest numbers. Diana? Well, Kelly, we just got today's new rate on the 30-year fix from Mortgage News Daily. Take a look. We have crossed over into the fours, 4.02% to be exact. That's a 12 basis point move higher in just one day. Rates don't usually move in double digits day to day. So it's a reaction, of course, to the CPI report and the resulting jump in the yield on the 10-year Treasury. Mortgage rates loosely follow that. So by comparison, the rate is now 122 basis points higher than it was a year ago when it was at 2.8%. That is significant purchasing power lost for home buyers 
right on the cusp of the spring season. So if you're buying the median price house right now, you'll be paying about $250 a month more than you would have just a year ago. And that's real money, especially given inflation and how much more we're paying for everything else in the monthly budget these days. Kelly. Anna, real quick, I know you've talked about this before. I I don't know if this is going to happen, but if the Fed were to start selling down its mortgage-backed securities more aggressively, what do people say that could do in terms of mortgage rates? Well, just jacking it up more. And they've yeah. already said they will. I mean, it, we look at the reaction today, the 10-year Treasury yield, they loosely follow that, but really mortgage rates depend on that amount of mortgage-backed bonds that are being bought or sold, et cetera. And if the Fed stops buying and dials back on what it holds, Again, yeah. can't say it enough. Very interesting. All right, Diana, we'll leave it there for now. Thank you, our Diana Olick, tracking all that. Coming up, we'll get the latest on two key sectors, autos and energy. The CEOs of Group One Automotive and the country's largest nat gas producer, EQT, will join me. We'll get their view on inflation and growth and see what this all means for the economy. Plus, we're buying up everything in earnings exchange today, whether you're buying now and paying later with a firm, buying a home on Zillow, or buying a vacation package on Expedia. We'll tell you what to watch for when these companies report after the bell. We're back in a moment. Canva presents unexplained appearances. It was an ordinary workday until... That presentation appeared out of thin air. Also, it's eerily on-brand. Wait, did that agenda just write itself? Words appear, making this unexplainable case... Unexplainable? It's Canva's AI tools. I can generate slides and words in seconds. Really? <clears throat> the real mystery is why I'm only learning this now. Canva.com. Designed for work. What's on the horizon for financial markets? At PGIM, it's a question that over 1,400 investment professionals relentlessly research in pursuit of your long-term goals. Specialized across asset classes, but united in collaboration, our teams provide global and local expertise. Our investments shape tomorrow, today. Pursue your tomorrow with PGIM, a leading global asset manager. Welcome back, everybody. Markets at fresh session lows right now, down about 353 points. That was the low tick at the moment for the Dow. Up 32 was the high. We've seen a decided weakness since those comments from the Fed's Bullard about 20 minutes ago, indicating he'd support a whole point of tightening by about the July time frame. In the meantime, let's check on shares of re auto retailer Group One Automotive. They're dipping today about, about 4%, despite better than expected earnings. But take a look. At supply. I'm telling you something you probably already know, but Group One was at just nine days of inventory for new vehicles in December versus 48 days the year before. There was also some improvement in used vehicles. That was up to 36 days of supply versus 32 a year ago. For more, let's bring in Earl Hesterberg. He is the president and CEO of Group One. Earl, it's so good to have you here today. And do you think prices are kind of turning and, and turning over as everyone watching inflation these days wants to know? Well, there's no doubt that inflation's here. So, and I don't think that's good for any business. Um, but in, in our business, you know, autos are purchased on monthly payments primarily and with historically low interest rates and strong used car prices. Um, we've got a little bit of buffer in there. Uh, also in our, our employee costs, which is you know, as a retailer, that's a big part of our, our cost structure. Most of our people are paid on production Right, they're salespeople, they're techs, uh, technicians, and so forth. So, um, it's it's not ideal, but it doesn't seem to be a material headwind for us yet. 
Yeah. So what do you think is going to happen if we look out to the middle of the year? Are we going to be saying, wow, you know, there was this huge dramatic reset in the auto market and now, you know, we're cutting prices and there's too much inventory or or not? Are we going to be tight for a while? We're going to be tight for quite some time, uh, much to my surprise, I, I would say. But we had 29,000 cars pre-COVID. We've got 3,500 now, and plus we've added 30 dealerships. So it's going to take a long time to build that inventory back to 20 or 25,000 units. And I, it's not going to happen in the first half of this year. And I'm not sure it's going to happen in the second half either. It is interesting to see the bifurcation between new and used, where it seems like there's still really strong demand for new, but inventory for used cars is now back on the move. What does that tell you? Well, it tells you those cars are worth a lot of money huh. and we're able to buy them from people. Huh. Um, and, you know, the, the word gets out that this is the best time ever to sell a car if you've got one to, to liquidate. So we've had to be a little more creative in sourcing, but We've been able to keep that inventory pretty pretty near ideal levels. Normally, I'd imagine that hurts profit margins, but it sounds like th these days, you know, whatever you're paying someone, you can turn around and sell it for whatever your margin is 10% more. Yeah, we, we have been able to do that. I, I don't know that we can do that indefinitely, uh, and we move them pretty quickly. Normally, we have only about a 30-day supply of, uh, of used vehicles, so we can react pretty quickly to market price changes. What does this all tell you about the strength in the consumer? I don't know if you can give us any color on the cash versus the financing. If rates are going up, is that going to be a headwind for this market or not? Yeah, well, you, that's a good point. The point is the consumer has money, and they want to spend the money. They would like to be buying more cars than we, we can supply. And it's never good uh, when interest rates go up, but they're just so low um, based on historical, uh, on, on historical rates. And it just doesn't make that much difference in a car payment. And, and should the rates jump up unexpectedly high, the auto manufacturers use their incentive money to buy those rates down. So I, I don't see that being a headwind for us either in the near term. Yeah, if I were the Fed, if this were the beige book, you'd basically be saying we can take rate hikes. Maybe they're in some ways a help and they're, you know, the sector can kind of cope with that. So finally, we've we've heard that Ford and GM and others are going around to dealers and saying, hey, if you charge markup for these new cars, you know, we are not pleased about that. What is it like on dealer lots? How widespread are our markups and what do you do about that? Well, that's an issue for us, too. We tend to agree with the auto manufacturers on that. Oh, I think if, if someone's coming from out of the market on the Internet buying a specialty car, then, then we may sell it uh, for, for above MSRP. But our policy is with our customers, you know, we want them to be our customers for a long time. We are not going to take advantage of them. So we agree with, uh, with auto manufacturers on that. Yeah, well, again, it's been a, such a strange auto market, and it sounds like it, it's not over yet. We appreciate you joining us, Earl, to talk about it. My pleasure. Earl Hesterberg is the CEO of Group One Automotive. Still ahead, fresh spending data that shows just how strong demand is in the U.S., even as the Omicron variant spread, plus which sectors saw the most action. And this stock is building on its gains after yesterday's 1 p.m. pop. Think you can guess it? We'll tell you who's behind the bump, why he's calling it his top value pick, and what else is on the move. Stay with us. Hi, I'm Ben. I suffer from a condition called writer's block. It strikes when I'm at work. That's why I choose Canva Magic Write. It works fast. 
generating texts in seconds thanks to AI. Common side effects include increased productivity, compliments from coworkers, feelings of satisfaction. Now I can say bye-bye to writer's block. Ask your boss if Canva Magirite is right for you at canva.com, designed for work. Canva! This podcast is supported by FedEx. Dear small and medium businesses, no one wants happy customers more than you do. That's why FedEx offers you picture proof of delivery, packageless and paperless returns, as well as weekend home delivery to 98% of the U.S. on Saturday and 50% on Sunday. See the FedEx service guide for delivery information. FedEx Ground service is also faster to more locations than UPS Ground. See what FedEx can do for your business. Absolutely, positively FedEx. Welcome back, everybody. We're watching markets near session lows. The Dow's down 333 points. It's the outperformer. It's down just under 1%. S&P down 52. NASDAQ down 179. Let's get to Rahel Solomon for a CNBC News update. Rahel? Hi, Kelly, and here's what's happening at this hour. President Biden speaking on his efforts to rein in health care costs. He's focusing on limiting what Americans pay for prescription drugs. Diabetes, Alzheimer's, cancer, they're not partisan issues. They're not Democrat or Republican. This is about, this is about whether or not you and your loved ones can afford the health care you need and the, medic- and the medicines you need to stay healthy. Because we need to ease the burden on working families by making everything more affordable and accessible. U.S. troops are deploying from Germany to Romania. Military officials say that some personnel have already arrived, while the rest will make the trip in the coming days. They're being sent to reassure allies and reinforce the NATO alliance. Another 1,700 American troops are being sent to Poland. And a former NFL player has been sentenced to three years probation after pleading guilty to transporting fentanyl. Jeffrey Hatch also worked at a New Hampshire drug recovery center. And on the news tonight, ahead of Valentine's Day, a look at financial infidelity, more common than you'd think, how to deal with money secrets tonight at 7 Eastern. Sounds romantic. <laughs> no secrets in, time. in our house. No money secrets. Uh, Rahel, thank you. Still ahead, will a firm's partnership with Amazon make up for its past reliance on Peloton? Zillow is set to report for the first time since shutting down its home buying business. And how much of a setback was Omicron for Expedia? It's all ahead in earnings exchange right after this. Welcome back, everybody. It's time for Earnings Exchange, where we give you the action, the story, and the trade on key earnings reports. And we have several of them today, starting with a firm, the stock up 38% in the past week, but it's still down more than 50% from its highs. Zero sell ratings on this buy now, pay later name, but could they have a Peloton problem? Kate Rooney is on the story for us today, and David Wagner has our trades. He's a portfolio manager at Aptis Capital Advisors. Welcome to both of you. All right, Kate, what are we watching for? So, Kelly, big thing is revenue concentration. That's sort of a fancy way of saying the breakdown of which of a firm's partners are going to drive the most sales. Historically, that has been Peloton. The good news, though, for a firm investors for this quarter is that Peloton's a lot less important than it used to be. We've seen a major uh, slowdown at Peloton when it comes to sales and uh, subscriptions. So that really used to be a bigger deal than it is now. Meanwhile, fast forward, you've got Amazon and Shopify right now appearing to really pick up some of the slack. So the lender has been slowly shaking off that reliance on Peloton. That is the big thing to watch. What percentage of revenue came from Peloton, especially as that company sees a slowdown lately? Uh, And a firm, when it went public, for, for some context, Peloton was making up about a third of revenue 
It has been falling lately, though. They've talked about moving away from that. It's only, at least in the, the prior quarter, was only about 10% of revenue. <laughs> Shopify was really the big story last quarter. It helped a firm grow to more than 100,000 merchants. So really propelling that company to sort of the level of Klarna, which now has 250,000 competition here, is really fierce lately. Square or Block bought Afterpay. So there's a lot of these big global buy now, pay later companies. Competition is a big thing to watch. Amazon, of course, is the huge focus for today. That exclusive partnership went into effect in November. So this is really the first quarter we're going to see that play out and how significant this is. And it was the holiday shopping season that tends to be big for payment companies as well. Some analysts are saying Amazon is going to take over as the biggest slice of revenue for a firm. Competition, like I mentioned, also big. And then guidance. You want to see what the company is looking for after a lot of fintech weakness. We saw PayPal lower guidance. Right. So people are going to be looking to affirm. Then the last thing would be the CFPB investigation. Any regulatory headwinds here for a firm? Yes. And those will probably be around for some time. David, would you buy the stock? Do you own the stock? No, we currently do not own the stock right now. It's starting to get me a little bit more interested. Still trading at 12 times sales, forward sales. But what we're really looking at is exactly what really Kate touched on right there. They're really starting to diversify their revenue sources. And as we know, uh, if a company stops being a one-trick pony, which they were with Peloton when they IPO'd at the beginning part of this year, as they diversify their revenue stream with Amazon and Shopify, I believe that the, the company could yield a higher multiple. But for this earnings report, you know, all in all, I expect a beaten raise here, though probably not to the same magnitude as some of the past few quarters. Are you interested in any stocks in this space right now? Would you be buying them? You know, I'm sticking more towards the high quality software companies right now, more your Adobe sorts. You know, I like owning companies that have positive earnings. We know a firm right now does not have positive earnings, hence my 12 times sales, 12 times forward sales comment for this company. I love their technology. I love how they're really getting ingrained with the younger generations, you know, with the buy now, pay later here. But uh, probably not looking to add to a firm or put it into the portfolio at the current moment. Affirm it, if you would. Totally. No, that makes sense. Ah. All right. We'll leave it there, Kate. Thank you. And next up is Zillow reporting today in their first report since shutting down their iBuying program and on the day that mortgage rates hit their highest level in more than two years. The shares are down 70 percent, more so than that even in the past year. Diana Olick is here with the story. What are you watching for tonight, Diana? Well, Kelly, like I said, I'm definitely looking for more color from the CEO on the wind down of the iBuyer program. That was the home flipping program, but Zillow paid too much for the homes it intended to flip. And so it had to wind that down. Now, news last month that it apparently sold the homes off to big investors like Cerberus and Blackstone. That did not help lift Zillow's stock or really its reputation on that whole fiasco. So we'll be watching for any commentary on that. Also, any mention, as you said, of rising mortgage rates. They will be key because rising rates slow down home sales going forward. Not to mention that Zillow has its own mortgage segment that had seen significant growth last year. And just finally, on the housing shortage, you want to see what that's going to play into the earnings because, of course, you have real estate agents. The fewer listings they have, the less they have to put on Zillow and pay for that. Great point. David, do you like the stock? Diana, or pardon me, Kelly. Yeah, I do like the stock a little bit right now. But what I'm really focusing on is that premier agent side of the business. It's a high, very high margin business, nearly double the size of the next largest competitor. You know, Zillow has exceptional brand recognition. There's no denying that. They draw nearly like 300 million unique visits per month. Wow. So, you know, use that to your advantage, you know, for monetization opportunities, especially given the new simplistic 
uh, nature of their business model right now that they've really started to wind down Zillow Home. So longer term, yeah, I believe that the market will start to reward the simplicity. But finally, you know, Kelly, being a Bengals fan and in jest a little bit, you know, I, I can't resist this. You know, um, I think the L.A. Rams need to start using Zillow. You know, they need to find a forever home, much like the San Diego Chargers, the Oakland Raiders. You know, St. Louis didn't want them. And I don't think L.A. has embraced them whatsoever. But, you know, Kelly, you know who does have a forever home? The Cincinnati Bengals. So I tell America, hey, jump on the bandwagon wagon. OK, all of that aside, and you're quite right, and it's sort of awkward to watch them contend for a Super Bowl when everyone still thinks they don't really belong there. Uh, But so (laughs) you said you're sort of sort of lukewarm on Zillow maybe into the future. Um, But what about the rest of the real estate space right now? There's a lot of, you know, contention about what stocks and which stocks you want to be exposed to in this rising rate environment. Call call me crazy. I actually really like the commercial real estate side of the businesses right now, like a a Cushman Wakefield trading at 12 time earnings, 12 times earnings right now. You know, I prefer that over CBRE, but I still like the CRE space. I'm a value investor at heart, and I definitely say that would be a contrarian play. All right. We appreciate it, Diana. Thank you very much, Diana Oleg. All right. Finally, the only one of these three stocks that's actually expected to report a profit today, Expedia. The shares actually hitting an all-time high, up 11% so far this year. Will we see any Omicron impact in this report? Dom Chu is here with the story for us. Hi, Dom. So, Kelly, I guess you could say that the expectations for Expedia and the Bengals and the Rams are relatively high going into this particular week. On a consensus basis, analysts are basically looking for roughly 69 cents a share in terms of earnings, roughly $2.3 billion worth of total revenues. Many traders and investors are looking towards companies like Expedia as possibly broader indicators or bellwethers for the overall travel sector. They incorporate bookings for just about everything, right? Airlines, hotels, rental cars. And for Expedia, it also has a presence in the vacation rental side of the business under the Verbo brand. Now, all of the issues surrounding the recent wave of Omicron, Expedia has actually started to see some benefit from the bigger return of demand for travel and leisure as people look to try to get back to normal, maybe scratch some of those itches to travel that have been festering during the lockdowns over the last couple of years. But this is very much a story about the future because many of those positives have obviously at this point been reflected in the stock price at current levels at record highs. So look for any of those outlook-like commentaries, especially when it comes to leisure travel. And by the way, Kelly, this is oftentimes a more volatile stock around earnings reports. To that end, we looked up in the options market right now. It's currently pricing in a roughly 8.5% move up or down on the heels of this report. So it could be pretty roller coaster-ish, Kelly. At least we know, David, this is one part of the market that's been working. So do you stick with it? I'll give you a succinct, a succinct answer here, actually, Kelly. I like Expedia right now. I like the cyclicality. I like the growth profile. Yes, the stock's up, say, 8% year to date, You know, which really shows me that investors aren't too worried about an Omicron-affected quarter, which we may see here. But you know, on last quarterly, on the last quarterly call, Expedia, you know, they saw improving trends in September with October reaching a high point on lodging bookings. It was only down 2% relative to 2019. So, you know, with the Omicron uptick in December, yeah, yeah, I expect the quarter will see some cancellations impacting net bookings and profitability. However, with the well-known pressure on this quarter's RevPAR and the declining Omicron cases here in the United States, I think the strict street can really look through and pass a, a softer quarter right now. But overall, heading into these numbers, I think investors, you know, the Cincinnati thing keeps coming on up. You know, they need to be excited as I am for the Cincinnati Bengals being in the Super Bowl. You know, Kelly, I've only cried twice in the last 10 years. 
the last time I did it was on Sunday. And the other time was probably at a George Strait concert <laughs> circa 2013. Now I'm not saying that the Expedia investors will be crying in excitement after this report. Cause you just said the vols expected about an eight and a half percent move. I'm just saying that there's a lot to be excited about with Expedia regarding their cost right. reduction efforts, as it should be more evident in their growth. Well, profile I'm just saying forward. the Bengals don't keep coming up. You keep bringing them up. Okay. So contain your excitement. <laughs> it's <laughs> been we, 30 years, Kelly. I know. I, I hope they can pull it off. I hope and it's guess a good who the game. last two people who beat them in the Super Bowl were? Who? The My 49ers. 49ers. Oh, all right. <laughs> Guys, don't get in a fight Jerry here. Jerry crushed us that game. Se- please separate. Dom Chu, Dave Wagner, uh, we really appreciate it, guys. Thank you very, very much. All right, stocks are hitting fresh session lows right now with the Dow down as much as 465 points. We were up 32 at the quote-unquote highs, but we've really lost a lot of mojo after those comments from Fed President James Bullard. A whole lot more to come. We're also covering natural gas taking a breather after a big run-up last month. And we'll talk to the CEO of the largest U.S. producer about where prices are headed from here and which parts of the country are most vulnerable to power shortages. Stay with us. Welcome back, everybody, on a big rotation day in the markets. It's time for some show and tell where we show you a chart and tell the story. Tupperware was the mystery chart we showed earlier on. Shares are climbing again today after posting their best day in 15 months yesterday. All of this after legendary investor Bill Miller called it his top value pick to ride out this transition and this market volatility. Here's what he told me yesterday on this show. Tupperware is down over over 50% in the last 12 months. It's got a great new management team. It's got a capital light business model. They have a buyback that's, that's if they get it executed properly, will be uh, roughly 25% of the shares outstanding. And it trades around four times earnings. So that in, in, a, in a regime that we think is going to shift decisively towards value, I, I think that's that's a great uh, a great play in here. Miller is also bullish on Vroom, along with Meta, which he thinks has an attractive value. He's on some, uh, bullish on some crypto plays like Stronghold Digital Mining and Silvergate Capital, and even Gannett, which he says could be trading at 20 or 30 bucks a share in three or four years. Even after the pop yesterday on those comments, it's still only about a $6 stock today. Still ahead, shares of NatGas producer EQT climbing more than 10% over the past two weeks, despite NatGas prices reversing. We'll talk to the CEO about where energy prices are headed from here. We're Back in a moment. Welcome back. Shares of America's biggest nat gas producer, EQT, are turning higher today despite missing estimates after the bell yesterday. Nat gas prices overseas recently hit fresh all-time highs as Asia and Europe deal with shortages. They're about 30% down from those levels lately. But with Russia amassing troops at Ukraine's border and inflation running hot, my next guest says prices could surge again. Joining me now is Toby Rice. He is the president and CEO of EQT Corp. Toby, it's great to have you back. Welcome. Hey, thanks. Thanks for having me. What would your message be to viewers who are concerned about the price of energy as it is today? Do you think it's only higher from here or could we go through a period of consolidation? There's a lot of concern um, with energy prices and they're well placed. Energy prices have been extreme. Um, but the message to viewers at home is these these prices that they're seeing are completely unnecessary. Um, the answer to to providing lower cost energy to Americans around to Americans around the country, to people around the world is providing more access to pipeline infrastructure for producers like EQT to connect our low cost supply with the demand centers around the world. So it's interesting that 
in, in a way you think the supply chain is the problem or maybe even you'd go back to exploration and production. But how much lower do you think our energy prices could be? Well, I'll, I'll give you this example. Right now in Appalachia, where we drill and produce, we've kept energy prices extremely affordable. Natural gas prices today are $3.50. Now, you compare that to what they're seeing in Europe, where gas prices got up to over $60. You should compare that to New England, where gas prices got up to $20. And you say, well, why is there? Why can we have gas supply so cheap here in Appalachia, but more expensive in New England and around the world? And the reason is lack of, lack of sufficient infrastructure. And when you look at what we've done here, um, here in the United States, this cancel movement for, for blocking pipelines, um, has there's been about eight BCF a day of pipeline projects that have been canceled. These are pipeline projects that would connect the Northeast with the biggest gas supply in the country and arguably the world, the Marcellus Shale. And we can give those $3.50 gas prices to people that are, are paying um, more prices than they need to right now. You know, I take your point. I know I understand the environmental concerns and the pushback and all the rest of it. But it's right now, I think people are seeing firsthand because it's the winter that the change in the high cost of gas of natural gas prices. I wanted to ask you, about, this is on the subject of, of oil and gasoline. But the president just said in response to some of the inflation, we're saying that he wants to work like the devil to bring gas prices down. Um, he says he's going to work into supply chains and bring the cost of energy and everything else down for the goods that come to America. What would be the most effective way of doing that right now? Make it easier for the American oil and gas producer to do what we do, and that's produce low-cost, cheap, reliable energy and do it in the most environmentally friendly way possible. And, and this is the president is exactly right. He needs to be focusing on energy because energy makes up over 50 percent of manufactured goods here and also in other parts of the country. And when energy gets expensive, manufacturing shuts down. We've seen what happened in Europe where fertilizer, fertilizer manufacturing plants have shut down due to the high cost of energy. And what that means is that's gonna trickle down to high prices of food. And you see what's going on in China where factories are being throttled back because they don't have enough access to cheap, clean, reliable energy. And that can only be served with U.S. natural gas in U.S. oil. And I'm here to say, you know, we can do a lot more. In the United States, the American upstream producer, we're running around 600 rigs right now. When you look back in the past, we were running 2,000 rigs. So this industry is, is capable of doing much, much more, but we need cooperation and political support to be able to do the great work that we do every day. So answer the concern of younger generations who will say there's no way I'm buying natural gas in, and oil stocks. There's no way we should you know, invest in more transportation infrastructure for a dying industry in this country. Well, this is actually the most important part of natural gas and supporting natural gas, because when you support natural gas, you are supporting the biggest green initiative on the planet. And we're talking about attacking the biggest source of emissions around the world. It's foreign coal. And over half the emissions in this world are generated by people burning coal. That is a tremendous opportunity for natural gas, specifically U.S. natural gas, which is produced cleaner than anywhere in the world, to be able to attack that problem. So if you, if you care about climate change, you should actually be leaning into natural gas. You should be supporting our industries because we are the biggest solution to a global climate problem. One final observation is really about the strategic importance natural gas is playing in all of the issues relating to Russia right now. It's my understanding that even the Northeast itself is importing some LNG from Russia. It's certainly complicating the dynamics in Germany and throughout the rest of Europe. The U.S. has basically warned it could 
shut down Nord Stream 2 if Russia invades, what would that mean for us having to step up and supply the world in an emergency way with LNG? Can we do that? And would it raise our prices here? Well, I think you can see the, the impact of LNG exports here in the United States on, on price here in the United States. And we've been exporting natural gas. We're number one LNG exporter in the world. And we've had lower prices than we've ever had here in the United States. So there's no correlation between LNG exports here in the U.S. and local gas prices. Actually, a stronger LNG export business will actually make a stronger U.S. LNG, US natural gas producer. And that strength is going to translate to allowing us to do bring wells online for lower costs and more access to, ch to cheaper energy to Americans. So a stronger U.S. LNG industry is actually going to make um, is going to allow us to provide energy security to the people in Europe while also keeping prices here uh, affordable for all Americans. Very interesting. Toby, it's great to have you here today. Thanks for all your time. You got it. Thanks. Toby Rice is the CEO of EQT. Still ahead, very different stories playing out in two luxury names that reported earnings today. Tapestry slightly higher while Canada Goose gets slammed. Also, MasterCard reporting retail sales surged 22% in January compared with 2019. What consumers were buying and why Omicron wasn't enough to stop spending. That's next. Welcome back. The spike in COVID cases last month not slowing down spending in January, according to some new data. Courtney Reagan is back with the details. Hi, Court. Hi there, Kelly. Yes, so the Omicron variant canceled plans and delayed return to work in January, but it didn't dampen shopping. Ahead of the government's retail sales report, MasterCard spending pulses retail sales across all forms of payment rose 7.2% last month compared to the year prior. Retail sales up more than 22% compared to January 2019 pre-pandemic. Shoppers are returning to stores and keeping up those online shopping habits, too. And yes, Kelly, inflation, of course, played a role. But so, too, did unit growth, according to the group. If you break it down into categories, apparel sales rose by almost 38% in January compared to January 2020. The CPI Today report noted that the cost of apparel was more than 5% higher in January compared to last year. High, certainly, by recent standards. But inflation doesn't account for a 38% sales growth rate. Luxury X jewelry was the strongest retail category MasterCard tracked, with sales up more than 45% year over year. Jewelry sales grew nearly 20% in January, well outpacing the 6.5% rate of inflation. So if you lay the reports together, the conclusion seems to be that inflation is hot, but the consumer is hotter. Kelly? Do we know, Court, where they were spending? Because if Omicron was spreading the way that we all know it was, sure. was, did it, was there a big shift to online? So they do give a breakdown of in-store and online, and there was definitely growth in both of those sectors, in-store and online. So the growth online was double digits, in-store single digits, but remember, that's a bigger piece of the pie, so that's still pretty notable. And then as far as sort of where, we don't know exactly what retailer, but department stores, for instance, were a call-out as a category, and that was pretty strong. And then apparel in general was strong, which of course has some overlay with department stores, but obviously can be sold to specialty players as well. Didn't help Canada Goose, though. Yeah, didn't help them. Uh, looks like they had some trouble overseas as well. Canada Goose with Europe and Asia being a little weaker. Yeah, you rely on there when times are good, but right now that is not helping. Courtney, thank you. We appreciate Thanks, it. Courtney Kelly. Reagan for us. That does it for The Exchange, everybody. You've been listening to The Exchange. Make sure you're subscribed to get each episode every day, same time, same place. This podcast is supported by FedEx. Dear small and medium businesses, no one wants happy customers more than you do. That's why FedEx offers you picture proof of delivery, 
packageless and paperless returns, as well as weekend home delivery to 98% of the U.S. on Saturday and 50% on Sunday. See the FedEx service guide for delivery information. FedEx Ground service is also faster to more locations than UPS Ground. See what FedEx can do for your business. Absolutely, positively, FedEx. FedEx.